Hello and welcome to the Week in Reorg Europe. My name is Ben Kovaka and I'm a distressed debt analyst here at Reorg. With me I have reporters Luca Rossi, Laura Vilaka and fellow analyst Rob Sommers. In this episode of our European podcast, we take a look at the distressed names in the construction sector. The construction sector has been topical in the distressed debt circles for a while now, with Southern Europe stealing the spotlight, though making way to other economies such as UK as well. Rob discussed Astaldi here on our American podcast on May 27th, and he's back with another stressed Italian builder. Before we delve into the specifics, what makes construction, particularly in Southern Europe, so interesting for investors? I mean, obviously, there are the huge cap stacks with uh, Astaldi sporting 2.5 billion of that, CMC having a 900 million, and Dabenga's huge 7.7 billion cap stack. But what is exactly driving this trend, Rob? Thank you, Ben. The sector has always had its challenges, especially given its cyclicality. However, certain Southern European construction companies face perception issues, and this has been compounded by a general lack of transparencies among companies that have borrowed large sums from international bond investors. As we'll discuss, whether it's liquidity concerns or progress on asset sales, companies in the space are not as forthcoming on information as maybe they should be. This is compounded by political risk. These businesses tend to have one foot in Southern Europe and another in emerging markets. Thanks for that, Rob. So we have Luca here to tell us uh, about Astaldi, the bigger beast of the two Italian construction companies. So could you first uh, kind of describe the background of the situation and what Astaldi's capi- uh, capital structure looks like? Sure, Ben. So talking about Astaldi at this point is a bit like talking about a black box. There is little clarity on what's going on there. In a nutshell, the company is trying to move forward with its 300 million capital increase, which was announced back in November 2017. So under the company's plan, the capital increase should lead to the financial strengthening of the group and the subsequent refinancing of its bonds. So bear in mind that Astaldi uh, is a a big beast, as you said, with over 2 billion of net debt, a leverage of 5.9 times and two sets of bonds. 750 million euros of notes which pay a 7 and 1 8 coupon uh, which are due in 2020 the ones which need to be refinanced and uh, 140 million euros of convertible bonds which are due in 2024. So let's go with the latest now. Uh, Some Italian sources just told us that Astaldi's lenders are working to form an underwriting consortium this or next week and that the company's right issue will be launched in September. The group would therefore move forward with the capital increase ahead of the sale of its stake in the third Bosphorus bridge. We will talk uh, about the bridge later, but let's keep in mind that the formation of the bank's consortium requires the existence of a binding offer for the bridge. All right, so what has the capital increase looked so far? So good news for Astaldi is that the company found a so-called white knight. The Japanese conglomerate IHI Corporation has announced its intention to acquire a significant portion of the rights issue, which will be about 18% of the company's uh, share capital after the capital increase. While the Astaldi family will be diluted to around 35% of the share capital, uh, but keeping the majority of voting rights. The rest should be subscribed by the market. So there is a series of uh, condition precedent to make the deal happen. For instance, Astaldi must comply with its financial covenants and uh, uh, its Venezuelan receivables cannot be written off further by the end of this year. 
However, the most important condition is that Astaldi gets a binding offer for its stake in the third Bosphorus bridge in Turkey. Previously, the company said that it would have had received a binding offer for its stake in the bridge, whose book value is around uh, 350 million, by the end of June. On the 28th of June, the chairman Paolo Astaldi said that the bridge disposal was at an advanced stage of negotiations. After that, nothing, no more communication. So the market is waiting for the bridge sale as it would provide some of the much needed liquidity to the company and at the same time give some confidence to its lenders. We understand that uh, there were three, four, five uh, bidders for the project, mainly Chinese non-sovereign and sovereign wealth funds that were negotiating on a price between 350 million and 400 million euros. We also heard that the reason behind the delays in the sale of the bridge is mainly political and related to the new uh, Turkish cabinet and new negotiations started between the government and the potential buyers regarding the length of the concession. As we explained, the sale of the bridge is important, but the price at which the bridge uh, is going to be sold is absolutely crucial too. All right, so my understanding of the situation is that the company is plagued by working capital issues, despite uh, having um, fairly uh, decent profitability. So it's, it's really a cash conversion issue. So it seems like uh, the banks are very invested in improving this uh, working capital problem and uh, for the company to be able to generate cash to uh, repay its liabilities. So, so is the bridge a key obstacle to the successful completion of the capital increase? Well, that's a key question, Ben. Um, to form an underwriting syndicate, banks need a binding offer for the bridge. That's the key point. The capital increase can be launched also before the sale of the bridge, but the binding offer is essential. One thing is for sure, uh, Astaldi's uh, liquidity is uh, strained, and according to our internal analysis and cash flow projections, the company could easily run out of cash at the end of 2018 if the situation doesn't change. All right, so what is the perception of the situation in Italy? Is there uh, something that uh, investors and stakeholders in a country closer to the flow might think? Uh, ben, I think the market has always been... Um, pretty confident that the whole uh, situation would have been solved. Uh, as a study is too big to fail and there are now too many parties involved in the deal. Also, the other remark that analysts and investors make is could Italy actually afford to see another construction company go down after the third construction group of the country, and I'm talking about Condotte, filed for extraordinary administration this month. So letting a company like Castaldi fail could be politically unpalatable as it is listed and has a lot of retail bondholders among uh, its investors. Given all of this, uh, what would happen if the company failed to secure the capital increase? I mean, we have seen some really ugly fallout from mis mismanaged bankruptcies in the sector before. Well, it would become a very complicated and uh, pretty ugly situation, I would say, both for the company and its uh, investors. I'll try to point out a few things. So if the capital increase fails, Astaldi would need uh, some liquidity, which could come as a super senior facility potentially provided by its own lenders. Remember that uh, Astaldi's investor base is essentially made of retail bondholders and that its bonds and loans are unsecured and uh, pari passu. 
The company might have to restructure its debt, of course. This may be achieved through an out-of-court debt restructuring using Article 182 bis of the Italian bankruptcy law. Uh, the problem here is that the procedure is based on the creditor's voluntary consensus. Uh, those who don't agree will get their debt at par at maturity date. The alternative uh, would be an in-court debt restructuring called concordato, a procedure which is expensive, uh, long and pretty damaging for a construction business. Just to give you an example, no bank uh, would be willing to concede bonding lines or performance bonds for a business bidding for contracts if it's under a concordato procedure. Another option would be extraordinary administration, a sort of a liquidation procedure aimed at preserving jobs more than at repaying creditors for companies deemed as uh, systemic. So in a nutshell, all these options would be pretty bleak. Thanks, Luca. And now over to Rob. Let's move to CMC de Ravenna, which is an Astaldi's peer in the sector. So what's the situation? How does it compare? Any interesting uh, movers, facts? Thanks, Ben. While CMC is a natural comparable to Astaldi, it's a slightly different situation. First, it's much smaller. CMC's revenue over the past 12 months was just over a billion euros, as compared to just over 3 billion euro for Astaldi. CMC's capital structure is also much smaller amounting to 900 million euros of total debt compared to 2.3 billion at Astaldi. Further, while Astaldi is listed equity, CMC is entirely privately owned. Both businesses, though, are involved in large infrastructure projects, roads, motorways, railways, subways, and so on, and both face persistent working capital issues. All right, so what does the capital structure look like? Are there any uncertainties or quirks? So, for example, with Astaldi, we had the bank that being Paripasu with the notes. And, you know, this only came into light uh, during an investor call. So have we seen something similar for CMC? To an extent. Uh, I mean, to provide an overview for those unfamiliar with the credit, CMC is two tranches of senior unsecured notes that total 575 million euro, a 165 million unsecured revolving credit facility, and 190 million of bank debt. The notes are not guaranteed, and that's, I think, a very important point here. It's also unclear whether the bank debt will rank ahead over Perry Pursue with the notes in a restructuring scenario. We know that the RCF is unsecured, and the company's been very transparent on that, but we don't know about the rest of the bank debt. Further, the lenders may have in place standstill arrangements that may enable them to realize higher recoveries as compared to the international note holders. Further, a restructuring of the business will likely occur in Italy, and the process may favor local lenders over bondholders. All right, Rob, so I saw you put together a waterfall analysis on CMC, which is available on our website. So how does the analysis um, of the capital structure tie into the understanding of the note holder recoveries? So CMC's 2023 notes are currently trading at around 88, and we project par recoveries if the company is able to maintain average revenue growth and margins and is able to ensure that working capital does not further deteriorate. However, the company's margin for error is thin as we project only 360 million of equity cushion in our base case. The concern really kicks in if the company's performance deteriorates. 
In our downside case, note holders recovered 37.4% when ranking alongside the company's bank debt, but 0% when subordinated to lenders' claims. All right, so you mentioned the impact of working capital, and I guess this is a recurring theme. So how does that play a role? Are we you know, talking about receivables again? Very much so, and our analysis shows that improving receivables just to average levels in our downside case improves recoveries to 86.3% in an all peri pursue capital structure and to 81.8% when the bank debt ranks ahead of the bonds. However, there is a real risk that, as in the case with Estaldi, CMC's receivables balance continues to grow. For example, though the company's management has expressed confidence in its agreement with Italian road authority ANAS, it announced in May that it will only receive a cash inflow in 2019, much more delayed than expected. To give some context, as of March 31, the end of the last reported quarter, ANAS owed CMC 332 million euro for work in progress, and with the current political volatility in Italy, there's concern that the company may not collect on all the amounts it is owed. All right, so it seems like this could spiral out of control uh, quite a lot. So how much of a liquidity cushion do these guys have? Are there any maturities due or or anything that the that the investor should be on the lookout for? Is this uh, or is this a problem that uh, that you know doesn't need to be addressed immediately? So I don't think there's any immediate triggers. The company doesn't have any bonds due until 2022, having come to the market to issue two tranches of notes in July and November last year, yielding six and seven eighths and six percent respectively. But it does have 135 million of bank payables falling due this year and its RCF will need to be extended as it matures next year in 2019. Further, there's always a risk that the company will trip up its maintenance covenants, though this is unlikely as the tests are based on EBITDA instead of cash flow. Further, its banks have generally been supportive. So I think it's more a credit to monitor performance declines in the medium term than any immediately actionable situation. All right, so last quick question here. You mentioned there's 135 million coming due uh, of bank payables. Uh, so does the company have any levers to pull, you know, maybe some cash? Yeah, so I don't see the 135 million as being an issue. Um, the company has always relied on, on bank financing. And as I said, the banks have generally been supportive. And I don't see this um, this situation changing. Um, it's it's a relatively immaterial part of the capital structure, particularly compared to um, compared to the uh, the bonds. So I don't see any any issues in that respect. Uh, from a liquidity perspective, CMC at the end of its last reported quarter in March had about 214 million of cash and about just over 31 million of undrawn availability on its RCF. So, you know, it still has some cash to, to play around with. And I don't see, as I said, any immediately actionable situation. Thanks for that. So this wraps up uh, our analysis of the Italian companies. And uh, let's move over to Spain. So the construction sector was a major theme in Spain for a while now. And... Uh, 
a lot of capital increases uh, were put in place in order to help companies deliver and, and deal with the situation, especially as the operations deteriorated and, and EBITDA fell down. So, uh, Laura, could you please tell us uh, about some stress uh, construction credits that required capital increases in the past and, you know, maybe uh, tell us how they uh, compare or contrast uh, with Astaldi? Hi, Ben. Hi, everyone. Well, I guess if we're going to talk about construction companies that work their way around their debt issues with a cap increase, it would make sense to talk about two different Spanish construction companies. That would be FCC, which is a case of success, and then Abengoa, which didn't really manage to do their planned cap increase. So let's kick off with a success story. Um, so in November 2015, FCC was struggling with the debt burden of its subsidiary, Cementos Portland, as well as the 71 million in losses related to the loss of value in another subsidiary, Cemusha. Um, in parallel, they were facing falling EBITDA on the back of lower sales volume and the deterioration of the domestic market. So at the time, the company's performance didn't allow for them to go into a full refinancing because they had about 7 billion euros in their capital structure and they were levered over seven times. So by December, the company had agreed with their two main shareholders, and that would be Carlos Slim and a couple of its family, to launch a 710 million euros capital increase. With the proceeds, FCC bought back about 350 million euros of debt, and that reduced their leverage substantially. This was the second capital increase undertaken by FCC, which had done a 1 billion share increase back in 2014. So for a while in 2015, Abengoa seemed to be going down the same path. They were lined up to do a 650 million euro rights offering. They were supported by their main shareholder, which at the time was Inversión Corporativa, and they also had the support of some lender banks. Over the course of a month, the banks were demanding that the company was tough on the terms of their capital increase. They were demanding that the company did an 800 capital increase instead of only 650 million, and then also uh, divest about 800 million in assets when the company was ready to only do 500 million euros. So unlike FCC, Abengoa's capital increase failed because their main shareholder, Inversión Corporativa, and the lender banks could not agree on the terms. At some point, though, during the process, a new investor, Gombarri, was due to participate in the increase, but then they pulled out last minute. So when Abengoa filed for insolvency in late 2015, it was the largest insolvency ever to take place in Spain. Now, you, you have to remember that this company was groundbreaking in the renewable energy sector, but they used to rely on a model where they financed their own projects, so that made them be exposed to a lot of greenfield risk until the project was done, uh, and ended up also levering them quite heavily. So by November 2015, when the company filed for preconcurso, which is a step before insolvency within Spanish law, it had about 13 million euros of debt and was levered over seven times. Abengoa got around the debt restructuring throughout 2016, uh, while the plan included getting 1.17 billion euros in new liquidity, uh, which was meant to be repaid by 2021. It also included 307 million of new bonding lines and some write-offs. And the aim here was to reduce the group's debt to about 4 billion euros. Thanks for the background, Laura. So where are we now? Right now, Abengo is on the verge of repaying new money 1A debt holders, which should come up to about $325 million. Afterwards, all hands will be on deck to complete the restructuring of Mexican power plant A3T, and that should be expected, I guess, by Q1 2019, um, so it can be sold afterwards. 
uh, with those proceeds, Zapango will repay the remaining new money tranches. In parallel, there's the issue of the outstanding $110 million and 52 million euros debt held by the Export-Import Bank of the US and a group of US insurance companies. These are the so-called civil claims. Abengoa tried to settle the claimant's debt with the insurance of a new bond, which would accommodate their debt. So this would make a new tranche right above the senior old money, make them rank pari passu with the senior old money, and then also re-establish them at par. In order to get the tranche created, Abengoa needed the senior old money bondholders to agree to the creation of the tranche, but the waiver was rejected in late May. Interesting. So does the company have a plan to cover the challenger's debt? Will this somehow affect the plan to repay the new money? And uh, will there need to be kind of a new plan drafted? Well, after the waiver got rejected, the company did not provide any additional information as to what they were going to do about the challengers. And on their part, the Export-Import Bank of the US and the sureties have filed several lawsuits against Abengoa. One of them requests immediate repayment of their debt and another one for fraudulent transfer, looking to cancel the transfer of the guarantees given to the new money to Luxembourg. The guarantees, if you remember, are the Atlantic Yield shares that have already been sold entirely and the Mexican power plant A3T, which is in the process of being completed. At the moment, Abengo is under renewed pressure to make sure the challengers get repaid and the motions don't go any further. And this is because these lawsuits could very well jeopardize the whole repayment scheme of the new money. The company says they were trying to negotiate with the civil claimants, but the claimants say they are not interested in further negotiation and will deal with the matter in court. The real issue here is that the Spanish construction group faces a high risk of insolvency as it does not have enough liquidity to cover the claims. This has been a, an issue with the group since their restructuring in 2016 and it's something that worries investors. Additionally, the company's cash position is very tight and Abangoa needs to generate additional liquidity until the sale of A3T in early 19. This is an issue that's been worrying investors for a while now. In a call with investors at the end of 2017, management said the company has been receiving some breach financing from some lender banks and said that the bridge loans would be enough to help the company through the year. Uh, many in the market are asking, well, what happens if the banks get tired of giving the company free cash? There was this article out on the Spanish press in July claiming that the company was looking for a new 250 million euro loan. I spoke to several sources and they said that this is not true, as in the company is not looking for a new loan. Others said that even if it is, it would not make sense for the company to obtain a fresh loan before they repay the new money and reshuffle the whole debt structure. Well, some investors are also worried that the amount obtained from the future sale of A3T might not be enough to cover the outstanding new money. The asset is currently 96% finished and should be completed before March 2019. Well, there's also an incentive to do so. Lenders secured on the asset can actually claim a back-end fee of 105% if the A3T isn't completed before March. After March, the back-end fee becomes 110%. Right now, most analysts predict that the A3T will be worth between $400 and $500 million, since it has more than the total amount of power purchase agreements needed. Management told investors that the A3T had received PPAs over the 100% needed in their last call for the full year 2017. 
the issue here is that an estimate of the outstanding new money 1B escrow account and new money 2 is between 500 million and 550 million dollars. So if you manage to sell the A3T between 400 and 500 million dollars, you're still at least 50 million dollars short of the total amount needed to cover the new money. So you can see why the company may be in a pickle, even if they can withhold a restructuring until the sale of A3T in early 2019. So what seems to be the most likely scenario here and what other options uh, do the investors and the company have? Well, both the investors and the company are against an insolvency filing. It's best to get a proper restructuring moving within a preconcurso, they reckon. Some investors consider that Abengoa will be able to hold on in terms of liquidity until the sale of A3T. This would count on the company being able to stall all the lawsuits filed by the civil claimants until early 2019. Only then the company would launch a full-on restructuring, and this may include some of the new money debt if it's not repaid. Others feel like it would be a better option to launch a debt restructuring now, when the company still has the A3T on its books, and to deal with the civil challenger's debt. Abengoa could add, let's say, a shortened facility to get money to repay the challengers, offer good terms to both the new money 1B and the new money 2 creditors, and recapitalize some of the junior debt and request fresh liquidity. Investors I've spoken to tend to be less trusting of the company for having a history of opacity, if you can call it like that. Uh, so there's a sense that the plan to repay the new money may fail. On the other hand, the assets securing the new money, that's the Atlantic Yield shares and the A3T, are ring-fenced in Luxembourg. So even with the fraudulent claim filing by the challengers, there's an actual slim chance to violate the structure. Abengoa's business itself, the operations, are going quite well and investors are pleased with the company's plan to shift the business model by end of 2019 and do more construction for third parties in order to shield themselves from the construction and financial risk. That's the model that drove the company to its complicated situation a couple of years ago. There's also the issue of how tricky it is to work around the debt of a construction company in Spain, given the danger of contagium on debt pricing. Isolux is pretty much out of the picture, but companies such as Aldesa have suffered in the past from grave fluctuations in Abengoa's pricing. Thank you very much for that, Laura. And with that, we wrap this episode of Reorg Research Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and we will be back in two weeks.